0: Hey listeners, Nathan here. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to drop in and do something that I've honestly been meaning to do for a long time. I've promoted this on social media, but I wanted to put it in an episode proper. And that is my friend David from the Kaiju Apostle podcast. He's been having one heck of a rough time the last couple of months. His podcast had to go on hiatus for quite some time because he had a new baby. Her name is Harlow. You may remember the hashtag Roar for Harlow that was going around for a while. That was because of this. She had a lot of problems when she was born. Thankfully, she's coming out of it and she's recovering. But the family has a lot of medical bills that still need to be paid. So please, please, please support David and his family on GoFundMe. I'm going to have a link to it in the show notes. Anything that you can give would be great. David is a wonderful guy. Their podcast is amazing. I can't recommend it enough. Please, like I said, support them in any way that you can. And now, on to the episode. Live from Ogasawara. This is The Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 17: The Last War Mini Analysis. Hello! Kaiju lovers and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of the Gestalt Vault, Nathan Marchand. We're in the thick of the summer of Mothra with our main film discussions, which we started last episode. Bex from Redeemed Otaku had a good time despite a little fatigue, and she'll be returning to cover the rest of the Rebirth of Mothra trilogy in both June and July. Given that G Fest was cancelled this year, hopefully those episodes will lift your spirits a bit. Maybe, Jimmy. I've considered a few ideas for something we could do that weekend to console fans disappointed the convention was cancelled, but I'm not sure just yet. Stay tuned, kaiju lovers! Also, while the podcast version of this episode will drop after the event, I'm excited once again to be a part of Kaiju Quarantine this Memorial Day weekend. Hopefully, I and my fellow podcasters survive our trek up Trash Mountain. Yes, deep hurting indeed, Jimmy. That's why you may have to join me. You're not sure you're intrepid enough? You survived the war in space! you can handle it. Not enough power left in the retcon? Ugh, weirdo. You'll be happy to know, listeners, that we'll be opening the mailbag for the first time in two months for some listener feedback. Stick around to hear it. In the meantime, let's move on to the actual topic of today's episode, the 1961 Toho film, The Last War. Yes, Jimmy, I'm fully aware Toei made a film the year before called The Final War. It was thought to be lost for years until the studio found a copy in 2013 and started airing it on TV. I may have to try to get a copy for The Vault. You know how I know that? Your pal, John LeMay? Hey, calm down, bucko. You haven't been fighting that flame war for a while. I don't need it to flare up again. Can we have The Last Flame War now, please? As I was saying, this is a film that has flown under many American kaiju and toku fans' radars, despite the fact that they've seen clips of it many times. It was a frequent source of stock footage for later Toho films like Godzilla vs. Gigan and Prophecies of Nostradamus. Heck, it was even used in the final episode of Ultra 7. But while it is technically a tokusatsu film, barely, at its heart, it's an anti-war drama. What's genius about it is that it's such a product of its time and culture that it's become timeless. It's a film I wish someone like Criterion would release so more people outside Japan could see it. Not since the terrible dub version saw a VHS release in 1985 has it graced the American shores. It deserves better. I'm not ashamed to admit that I nearly cried watching it. You would know, Jimmy. I seem to remember your favorite actor, David Perrin, having an infamous crying scene in a movie about your life. Once again, listeners, I wish I was doing more than a minisode with this. It's a deep, rich film. But my contract with the board of directors has strict clauses on the length of episodes. So I highly recommend you listen to Godzilla novelization project creator and season pass tourist Danny Damana when he joined Brian Churchill to discuss this film on Kaiju Vision Radio. Link in the show notes. It's a fantastic analysis, and I hope our little episode will supplement it well. The film follows a typical middle-class Japanese family as they navigate everyday events, illnesses, courtship, work, etc., against the backdrop of rising Cold War tensions. Interspersed through all of this, we see Japanese government officials trying to be a voice of reason between the Federation and Alliance as they head closer to war. But while officers and missile bases on both sides desperately avoid accidental launches, the fragile peace is shattered, plunging the world into nuclear war. (laughs) Yes, Jimmy, I know. Spoiler warning. The Last War, or Sekai Disenso probably goes unnoticed because most of the creative team behind the camera aren't the ones kaiju and toku fans follow. It was directed by Shuei Matsubayashi, who was known for war pictures and comedies. The composer was Akuma Dan, and other than Sayonara Jupiter in 1984, he has no other tokusatsu credits. Takeshi Kimura is the screenwriter, but he shares that credit with Toshio Yasumi. However, Eiji Tsuburaya supervised the special effects, and this ranks as some of his best work. And of course, Tomoyuki Tanaka was one of the producers. You're surprised he didn't try to add a monster? You know, suddenly I am too. That would have been awkward though. Anyway, in front of the camera, we have three familiar faces. Frankie Sakai plays a middle-class father working hard to provide for his family. Yuriko Hoshi plays his daughter, Seiko. And the always amazing Akira Takarada is her loving fiancé slash husband. Yep, they elope in this film. It's interesting to see them play a madly in love couple when three years later they would be platonic co-workers in Manta vs. Godzilla. Like Robin Williams and others would do in America many years later, Sakai proves that comedic actors can give powerful dramatic performances. His monologue at the end of the film will break your heart. I would argue that Godzilla fans should see this film because it is a spiritual predecessor to the return of Godzilla. This is a film that showcases the Japanese national spirit at that precise moment in time, both domestically and internationally. It is a profoundly pacifistic story. Sakai's character, Mokichi Tamura, is an unwavering idealist who believes neither the Federation nor the Alliance, who are clearly stand-ins for NATO and the Soviet Union, would risk going to war and destroying the world. It's an idealism shared by Prime Minister Masaki, whose government speaks to both sides because they, Japan, don't use force in war, an indirect reference to Article 9 of their post-war constitution. He says they can't hide behind neutrality anymore and must expect to be attacked. While Japan is part of the Federation, the PM insists they must teach both sides their quote-unquote new ways, i.e. pacifism, for the sake of their children. It is Japan's responsibility to keep world peace. But as the film progresses and conflict escalates, Japan finds itself caught between the superpowers like it does in the 1984 Godzilla film. As I discussed in episode 9, Kimura explored a similar theme four years before this in The Mysterians, where Japan brings the world together to combat alien invaders. In The Last War, though, Kimura crushes this idealism. Both Mr. Tamura and the Prime Minister watch as their hopes slowly unravel in the face of unrelenting reality. The only glimmer of hope the film offers is a few lines of text saying this is a cautionary tale and we must all do everything we can to prevent a war from happening. Given what I know about the pessimistic Kimura, I'm sure this was far closer to his own views. The Tamuras embody the new rapid prosperity Japan was experiencing. This was the beginning of the Japanese economic miracle. Mokichi earned his money not only working as a limo driver, but as an investor in the stock market. His family lives in a big house and can afford items that just a few years before, as seen in Yasujiro Ozu's film Good Morning, were considered almost unobtainable luxuries. This affluence was inextricably connected to the nation's post-war pacifism. Thanks to the Yoshida Doctrine, a strategy adopted after the war under its first post-war prime minister, Shigeru Yoshida, Japan relied on the United States to protect them militarily. This freed them to focus on economics with the U.S. serving as the guarantor of security. But as one of my sources says, with this alliance came the fear of entrapment. If the United States escalated its Cold War with the USSR, it would drag Japan into a conflict with the Soviets or China. This was especially true given the number of U.S. military bases in Japan. This would cause a domino effect that would destroy everything the country had built. The Last War brilliantly illustrates how the consequences of world leaders' decisions trickle down into the lives of everyday citizens. You're right, Jimmy. For better or worse, we've been seeing that the last five months with coronavirus. Like I said, this film is timeless. All that to say, listeners, it's no wonder the film shows us a father and a prime minister, both of them leaders, to illustrate this. On both a personal and national level, Japan tries to maintain peace, only to watch it all die. What struck me was the nuance given to both sides in this film. It shows officers at bases for both the Federation and Alliance, including a scene where the camera follows an officer as he walks into the command center in one long take. At both bases, they almost launch missiles by accident thanks to miscommunication or a mechanical error. They speak about their families and personal goals. None of them want war. They strive to prevent it or hesitate to wage it. It's their respective governments that seem to be pushing toward annihilation. For most Americans, including myself, It's a perspective we're not used to seeing, and it's one I think would benefit us to hear, an outsider's view. I agree, Jimmy. The terrible English acting is the only real black mark on what is otherwise a masterpiece of a film. It says something when Takarata can say one or two lines of English better than the native speakers. Like I was saying, As the only nation to ever have nuclear weapons used on it, Japan is uniquely qualified to offer that perspective. Takarada's character Takano tells Seiko that Mongolians were the first to use gunpowder, and Japan was their first target, just like they were the first to have nukes used on them. The younger generation, he admonishes, must be kept from opening the door to destruction. All it takes is for one person to panic and press the button to wipe everything out out all of these elements these themes coalesce in a tokusatsu sequence that shocked me with its violence and this is coming from someone who's seen plenty of destruction on film for years and who has seen many of these scenes as stock footage it was because i not only got to know these characters but i saw the futility and even the pettiness of the international conflict what was the point of the war if the outcome was mutually assured destruction It's why I, as a Christian, thought it was brilliant that the family's old neighbor, a man who lost everything in the Hiroshima bombing and now donates to anti-nuclear causes, had a Bible from which Seiko reads James 4, 1-4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's a brilliant recontextualization of this passage. But as Reverend Mafune, the island's chaplain, told me when I discussed this with him, the film sadly doesn't include the following two verses that offer tremendous hope. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Or as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. If I may get a little personal, listeners, while I admire this film and people like Ashiro Honda, unlike my friends over at the Kaiju Apostle podcast, I am not a pacifist. But neither am I a warmonger. I do not seek conflict or aspire to make enemies. In that regard, I am in agreement with pacifists. But when conflict comes my way, I will do everything in my power and morals to resolve it or win it. I don't believe turning the other cheek means enduring unending abuse. It means not escalating a conflict unnecessarily. As Martin Luther said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. Let me close with a poem I read while I was taking a poetry writing class in grad school. It's one that I think would have fit perfectly with the film's ending, especially as Takano's ship sails back to a decimated Tokyo to join their countryman and his wife in death. Little Prayer on Hiroshima Day For Jaina by John Bradley If one morning in the east Chicago flickers and flashes into ash and you are not here by my side, I would take the hand of the flames waiting in the doorway and go into the next world where I know you will be waiting for me. (sighs) I think we could use a break after such a heavy analysis. We'll be back after these messages. earth destruction directive i'm a dedicated fan of all things daikaiju and i'd like to share that with all of you please check out earth destruction directive at two true earth destruction directive where we turn your daikaiju dreams into city smashing reality Listeners, welcome back. We missed you. Don't get snarky about our fans. I know you're kidding, but sometimes I wonder. All right, listeners, let's crack open that mailbag and see what we have. First, let me quickly go over our new reviews on Apple Podcasts. As I mentioned a few weeks ago in a bonus episode, I'll be sending copies of my kaiju novella, Destroyer, out to several of these reviewers once I get them signed by all the authors. Also, please do leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts, it really helps to spread the word about the show. And, your review will be read live on the air. So first I'm going to read a review that I was actually unable to see, which surprised me. Apparently, if you live in Canada, you have your own little subset of iTunes. And if you review a podcast, those reviews won't appear to people who live in other countries. I guess that's just how iTunes works. This is from Chris Cook, host of One Cross Radio, which, if you've been following the show on social media, you know that he'd stop by on Monster Island and we recorded an episode of his show. Not only did he have me as a guest, but he had Jimmy as well. Yeah, that was very interesting. We went on for so long that he's going to have to split our recording into two episodes. I'll be sure to let you know when those drop. Anyway, here's his review, which goes all the way back to January. Title, A Fantastic Podcast. Five stars. It's insanely evident the amount of effort and research that goes into this wonderful podcast. The presentation and way it's done is also something different than any other podcast going. Well worth a listen. Thank you, Chris. Next, we have a review from username big D little D G. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. And it was posted on April 1st. No joke. Also, a five star review. Title New Face on Mount Rushmore of Kaiju Podcasts. Which, if I remember correctly, I think Michael Kaiju Groupie Hamilton called us that a few months back on his review. He writes Love the mix of full reviews and mini analyses. As a fellow veteran, I appreciate the employment of Jimmy from NASA. Let me inject myself here real quick. Despite the fact that Jimmy and I do butt heads a little bit, I have tremendous respect for veterans, and I love the fact that Jimmy is employed here because there are a lot of veterans out there who struggle to move back into civilian life. Although, as I've been saying for months, I still don't know how you survived, man. One of these days, I'm either going to figure it out, or you're going to tell me. Oh, really? Don't bet on it? You underestimate my investigative powers. Anyway, back to the review. Great information done in a tight but fun way. Keep up the great work, and we'll get the chisel out soon. Not sure what he means by that last sentence, but we'll roll with it. If you know what that means please let me know. Also, DDG, feel free to send me some email feedback or whatnot and tell me what that means. I'd love to hear from you. Let's check out the emails that we got from listeners. Our first one, interestingly, comes to us from Bex. She writes, Hello, Nathan and Jimmy. Oh, trying to steal my shtick there, I see. Uh Uh-huh. As a newbie to the kaiju genre of movies, I wanted to write in regards to your episode on King Kong 1976 featuring Ben Avery. Up until this episode, the only King Kong movie I had watched was the Peter Jackson remake. I'm going to inject myself here real quick. I feel a little bit sorry for you, Bex. You really owe it to yourself to watch the 1933 original, let me tell you. Anyway, she continues. After listening to your episode, the 1976 remake intrigued me, and I discovered it was free to watch with Amazon Prime. So, I grabbed a snack and pushed play. Here are some of my thoughts. I really like the creature effects. Knowing it was made in the 70s made me appreciate how practical effects can really give a sense of weight and mass, but um, to fantastical creatures. Considering we're dealing with a giant ape, it really brought him to life. Seeing the World Trade Center in film will always remind me of 9-11. As painful as that memory is, I hope the future creatives will include the Twin Towers in their period pieces when the setting calls for it. They were, and are, iconic, and should be remembered. Injecting myself here again. I totally agree with you, Bex. Anyway, back to her letter. The love triangle was a bit cringe. Mm-hmm. Coming from a fundamental Baptist background, I wonder how the movement dealt with this movie. In the 90s, when Disney's Beauty and the Beast came out, I remember quite the controversy about it amongst the hardline conservative fundies. They claimed it promoted bestiality. I know that sounds crazy, and rightfully so. Was there a similar uproar with King Kong? Does Ben Avery have any insight into this, or any of your listeners for that matter? I would be curious to know. Injecting myself here again? I would love to know too, honestly. That movie came out before my time, so I really don't know, and I haven't seen anything in my research that confirms that. I wouldn't be surprised, but I do think that one thing, even in that movie, that would help it is that it's a one-sided romance, if you want to call it that. It's only Kong who's in love with Dwan. Dwan isn't really in love with Kong. Now, Dwan is definitely sympathetic toward Kong, but I don't think there's some sort of bestiality love going on there. Not really. It's gross to think about. So I don't really want to go there. So I don't know. Please let me know, listeners. Or Ben, if you're listening to this, Ben, please send me feedback if you know anything about this. Anyway, back to her letter. I really enjoyed the toku topic. I started driving in the early 90s and remember gas being under a dollar. It fascinates me that the oil crisis had such long-term effects. Considering we're in the middle of a pandemic, as I write this, it makes me wonder what long-term effects this will have as well as what sort of movies and commentaries will be produced during this time. I hope this email finds you all well. Keep up the great work, Bex. You're totally right, Bex. There is going to be a slew of movies and stories I think they're going to come out of this particular moment in history. Heck, I already saw a headline within the last couple of days that said Michael Bay, of all people, wants to make a movie about coronavirus. Apparently, it's going to be set two years in the future where the pandemic is still going on. I have no idea what to expect from that. I mean, what's he going to do? Have the virus blow things up? She did have a quick little addendum here. She says, oops, I forgot to add this. Overall, I enjoyed the movie and your guys' analysis. Thank you, Bex. Thank you very much. And we have a quick little one here. This sparked an email conversation with him, so I've technically already answered these questions for him, but I'll bring it up on the air here real quick. This comes to us from Thomas Meehan. I hope I said that right. Hi, I'm a new listener, and I'm enjoying the podcast. Keep up the great work. Will you be discussing or delving into Super Sentai or Kamen Rider TV shows or movies in the future? Thanks for reading. Sincerely, Thomas. Now, what I wrote back to him to tell him was that Kamen Rider and Super Sentai are not out of the question. The problem is that I am not an expert on all of those. In fact, to be honest, it's only really been within the last six months or so that I have been diving headlong into Ultraman, thanks to all of the Mill Creek releases. I got to the point where I realized that with these three major franchises, and they're all huge franchises, Super Sentai, Kamen Rider, and Ultraman, I really only had enough time in my life to deep dive into one of them, so I chose Ultraman. The other two I will dabble in, most likely, because I like a lot of things, and my time is eaten up by a lot of stuff. That being said, I do know a lot of people in the fan community who are experts in this that I could refer you to, Thomas, or if you really want to hear a discussion about either of these on this show, please let me know, and I will get a hold of some of my podcast friends who know a lot more about these than I do, and they can school me (laughs) for your listening enjoyment. Oh, shut up, Jimmy. You're not the only one who gets to school me or whatever on the air. I do have a couple bits of feedback that I would like to go over from Kyohei Toshi about a couple of different episodes, but for the sake of time, again, contractual obligations, I think I will save them for a future episode. Sorry, Kyohei. Please be patient. On a related note, I want to give shout-outs to our patrons Travis Alexander, host of Kaiju Weekly, Danny DeMana, and EliZilla13, a.k.a. Kaiju Media Junkie on Instagram, for supporting the show on Patreon. Thanks. Have you seen The Last War? If so, what'd you think of it? Send us your feedback on this or any other film we've covered on the show. Listen to our contact info in the credits. If you haven't seen the film, I urge you to track it down and watch it. You won't regret it. Join us next time when Bex from Rudindo Taku returns for part two of The Summer of Mothra to discuss Rebirth of Mothra 2. How are you getting her here, Jimmy? No idea? Can't you just send the vulture mech again? It's no fun using the same method twice. Just so long as it isn't that confounded robot Pteranodon. No, I'm not going to let you live that down. And neither will Danny. Now, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is the Monster Isla One. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edited by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Ko Otani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org all film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied the show is available on apple Podcasts, stitcher youtube and other fine podcatchers. please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show the monster island film vault is a moonlighting ninjas media production sayonara